Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. The bulk of my training is in theology rather than in history or Irish language and literature. Uh, So I'm an amateur when it comes to the study of medieval Irish culture. But I've been careful in preparing this lecture to rely only on the best of scholarship. And on your handout, you'll find a list of the main works that I'm relying on here. That said, I did spend some time here in Trinity studying Old Irish. And I often experience something on campus that must really bug those of you who are here for four years or more. And that is tourists looking for directions to the Book of Kells. But I'm fairly sure that none of you has ever been asked for directions to this book, the Book of Leinster. It was written in the 12th century, so it's about 300 years younger than the Book of Kells. And its decoration is nothing like as lavish as the Book of Kells or the Book of Duro and so on. But it's no less fascinating. It was compiled and written largely by one man, Aid McCriffin, the lector of the community of Terry Glass in County Tipperary, in that monastery. So what's in this book? Plenty of material that is explicitly Christian. Stories about St. Will Ruin of Tala, of St. Mulling, anecdotes about clerical students and their cats, and a brilliant 8th century poem on the glory of Bridget and Kildare over against the fading glory of the hill of Allen. That's There'll be a video on that poem uh, to feature shortly on the Dominican YouTube channel, so do like and subscribe. But there's plenty of material in this manuscript, the Book of Leinster, which might strike us initially as purely pagan. And just to be clear, I use that word pagan tonight without any pejorative overtones, referring not only to the ritual and worship of pre-Christian people in Ireland, but to the whole pre-Christian culture in all its dimensions. So, for example, we find in the Book of Leinster stories that are set in pre-Christian Ireland, featuring characters who are known to many of you tonight. Cúchulainn and Finn Cool, Queen Maeve and King Conor MacNessa. The oldest copy of the great Irish saga, the Tónbó Cúlnia, or the Catarate of Cooley, uh, is in this manuscript. And it includes many other stories set in the same story world like the comic tale Mesca Ullad, the intoxication of the Ulstermen, Ulstermen who are trying to make their way from Derry to Dundalk, but who are so drunk they end up in Kerry. What follows is basically a medieval version of this film. (laughs) Apart from comedy, there is tragedy too, like the unbelievably sad story of Deirdre and the sons of Ishlu. The manuscript also includes many poems about parts of the Irish landscape put in the mouth of pre-Christian characters like Finn McCool and Oshin. And there are notes also on the identities of the Tuatha Dé the supernatural beings associated with pre-Christian Ireland. 
At this point, I should make clear that I'm not claiming that all or even most of this material necessarily originates in pre-Christian Ireland. That's a whole other question to be examined in the, in the case of each text. What matters is that these stories are set in pre-Christian Ireland and that they purport to have come down from that period. Whether that pagan provenance is real or imagined is largely irrelevant to our purposes tonight. So if you're familiar with the nativist, anti-nativist debate in Celtic studies, we can put that entirely to one side tonight. In any case, at first glance, these two sets of material, overtly pagan and overtly Christian, they might seem to be strange bedfellows. But things get even stranger when we notice a third bedfellow, material which combines apparently pagan characters and narratives and themes with Christian characters and narratives and themes. So take the Lever Gavala Aaron, for example. It's a long and complex text with a long and complex history, which tells the story of how the current inhabitants of Ireland, the sons of Mil Espana in this uh, story, came to come to Ireland. What they were doing before they came to Ireland, involving Egypt and Greece and all kinds of madness, and uh, who was in Ireland before they came. So the various stages of inhabitation in Ireland before the arrival of the Gaels or the Sons of Neil. It's from a poem in this text that our title tonight comes, Fire in the Head. In this story, the legendary poet Avergin is the first of the Sons of Neil, the first of the Gaels to step foot on Ireland. And as he does so, he recites a poem. I am wind on sea, I am ocean wave, I am roar of sea, and so on and so on. I am God who fashions fire for a head. That's the translation of Robert McAllister, good UCD man. And the implication in his version of the last line seems to be that it is the one God, the God of Christianity, who is speaking through Avergan. And that's not at all the most popular reading of the poem nowadays. I am a God who fashions fire for a head or for the head. There's many different modern versions and they all go for something like that, God with a small g. The idea being that Avergan is being identified with some kind of shape-shifting fire god, even though in the story he's, he's clearly human. And this poem is often taken today to be a statement of pure, archaic Irish paganism, untouched by Christianity. We'll return to it at the end of the lecture, and ex I'll explain why I think that McAllister's monotheistic interpretation is the far more probable one. For the moment, though, I'll just point out that the poem goes on with a series of rhetorical questions which might ring some bells for any Bible geeks here. So just notice those rhetorical questions. In any case, the broader narrative of the Lever Gavala Aaron weaves together biblical traditions and ostensibly ancient native traditions into one synthetic story, synchronizing key moments in the Bible with events in the history of the island of Ireland and separately events in the history of the Wandering Gales. I say ostensibly ancient native traditions because some of the elements of the non-biblical material in this story are certainly medieval inventions. So the name of Mil Espana, the ancestor of all the Gales, is a corruption of Miles Espanier, Spanish soldier, soldier of Spain, who is the equivalent character in an older version of the same story. And that's accepted by, by all scholars. So recent scholarship views this complex narrative to be the result of a concerted creative effort of Irish monastic literati from about the 9th to the 11th century, some of whom we know by name, people like 
Flan Monastrup, the lector of Monaster Boyce in the 11th century, and Ochud of Flynn from 10th century Armagh. What else is there in the book of Leinster? There's a great deal of genealogical material and place name lore, all of which involves connecting the people and landscape of Christian Ireland with their pagan past. And if you look closely at the stories set in the pre-Christian world in this manuscript, you'll notice that some of them have an explicitly Christian message. So the death tale of Conor MacNessa is a famous one. There he is there, dying. The king, he notices strange signs in the sky and asks one of his druids what the signs mean. And the druid explains that a certain Jesus Christ has just been crucified and that he was the same age as Conor MacNessa, that synchronizing habit of the early medieval Irish. It's this knowledge that leads directly to Conor's death and other versions of the story uh, count this Ulster King explicitly as a Christian by the baptism of blood long before the coming of Patrick. One of the Cuchulain stories in the Book of Leinster is actually set in the time of Patrick when Cuchulain, in the world of the story, is already dead for 450 years. So in this story, Patrick is doing his best to convert Loigra, the king of Tara, but the king answers that he will not believe unless Patrick raises Cuchulain from the dead. So Patrick does just that. And on the hill of Tara, Cuchulain appears to Patrick and Loigra in his chariot in the air above them, with his hair, we're told, as smooth as if a cow had licked it. And just to prove he really is Cuchulain, he performs a load of warrior tricks in the air above them. No fewer than 27 such tricks, we're told. And this great warrior then asks Patrick to lead him into the land of the living. And he encourages the king to believe in God and in Patrick. The king wants to hear all the stories of Cuchulain's deeds and Cuchulain indulges his royal fanboy, but he keeps insisting that Loigra be baptized and so eventually he is. One of the strangest texts in this manuscript takes the form essentially of an epic slam poetry battle between a young poet, Neva, who has usurped the title of Olive or master poet long before his training was complete. He actually puts on a beard of brass and does a little spell to make himself look a little bit older. I'm sure you've all done the same, trying to get into Copperface Jacks and so on. <laughs> but the, uh, he take, the, the more experienced uh, poet, Ferhertner, is in this battle with Neda, and it's Ferhertner who wins the battle, but in a very strange way. He makes a prophecy, a prophecy about the end times in explicitly Christian terms. He talks about churches and bells and tithes and so on. So the Christian composers of this dialogue are imagining Ferhertner to be a pre-Christian inspired with true prophecy. All this is in one 12th century book from the Irish Midlands, but it's a book that draws from many other sources. So its interest in the stories of pre-Christian Ireland, it's no local anomaly. And we find similar themes in other medieval Irish Christian sources of many different kinds and dates. Yes, there are plenty of stories which emphasize conflict between the early saints and Druids, the fire on the hill of Slain, we probably all know that story, or stories which underline the superiority of Christianity and its victory over pagan belief. But there is also an abundance of these stories of pagans who are filled with the Holy Spirit and who prophesy Christ, and there's an abundance of texts containing positive assessments of pagan laws and literature by Christian figures. I'll just pause for a wee bit of Ishka. So, Take the life of Patrick, for example, written by Murakou in the late seventh century. 
It contains several scenes of conflict between Patrick and the Druids, but there are examples in this story of inspired pagans too. So we meet a character there by the name of Monessen. I'd never heard of her until fairly recently. She's the daughter of a pagan king in Britain. And she was full of the Holy Spirit, Monessen tells us, even though she had not heard the gospel preached and hadn't been baptized. She has come to know the one God, how? By looking at the sun and asking who made this wheel that illuminates the world. And the text actually tells us that this made her like Abraham, who, quote, through nature searched out the maker of all that exists. We'll come back to that mention of Abraham. But if you know your Saint Paul, you should be thinking straight away of Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, the foundational text for what we might call natural theology. What can be known about God is plain to men and women, not just those uh, who have experienced revelation, because God has shown it ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he made, through the created world. So this is what happens in the case of Monessen. She keeps pestering her parents with questions about the creator. So they bring her across the sea to Patrick, who duly baptizes her. But note that the Holy Spirit is filling her and illuminating her, but she still needs baptism. So the message is not that the gospel and the sacraments add nothing to natural goodness. The message is that natural goodness is real and is fulfilled in the life of sacramental grace. There's another important example of a good pagan in the same life of Patrick. When Patrick arrives at Tara, after lighting the Paschal fire in opposition to the Druids, no one, when he arrives at Tara, no one rises to welcome Patrick except one, Dovdoch Makulogr. Significantly, he's described as an excellent poet. So it's a poet, not a king or a warrior or a pagan priest. It's a poet who recognizes the holiness of Patrick. That's significant. The same Dovdoch, he turns up in another fascinating source, the prologue to the major collection of early Irish law, the Seanachis Mór. So that collection, it consists of almost 50 separate legal tracts on topics as diverse as marriage and beekeeping, contract law, the law of dogs, the law of cats. And it was probably compiled in Armagh in the seventh century. In its earliest stage, it includes a reference to a meeting between Dovtoch and Patrick, in which Dovtoch the poet outlines to Patrick the laws of the Irish laws that are explicitly referred to as recht agne, that's a key term, natural law. Uh, that's a term that should also be familiar to any readers of St. Thomas Aquinas here tonight. And it has its theological roots, of course, in the letter to the Romans as well. Romans uh, chapter 2, verses 4 to 15. And in this meeting between Dovtoch and Patrick, Patrick determines that whatever is in these laws of the Irish, these ancestral laws, that does not conflict with the Christian scriptures ought to remain in force. That brief story is then expanded in, into a longer prologue in the eighth or ninth century. And I've given you the relevant text there on your handout. It was entrusted to Dovtoch to exhibit judgment and all the poetry of Ireland and every law which had held sway among the men of Ireland in the law of nature and the law of the prophets. And interestingly, that's clearly the pre-Christian Irish prophets um, in the judgments of the island of Ireland and among the poets who had prophesied that the white language of the Beati would come, that is the law of scripture. For the Holy Spirit spoke and prophesied through the mouths of the righteous men who were first in the island of Ireland, as he prophesied through the mouths of the chief prophets and patriarchs in the law of the Old Testament. For the law of nature, recht agnet, reached many things 
which the law of scripture did not reach. That's an extraordinary text, and it should really surprise us, I think. It's quite an explicit claim that the God of Christian Ireland was active also from the perspective of early Irish Christians in pre-Christian Ireland. And the idea that as well as moments of prophetic inspiration, the natural law was discernible to the people of pre-Christian Ireland, that appears again and again and again in early legal text. Recht agnet precedes and is completed by recht litera, written law, the law of the scriptures. Note too that pagan poets, according to these texts, were particularly sensitive to the inspiration of the true God. This is a key motif, and it's repeated in many other texts, like the 11th century poem, Avergen Glungel Turten, listing many of the great poets of pre-Christian Ireland. Conla of the Connachta is described as speaking with the strength of the Holy Spirit, opposing the Druids long before Patrick did. So a Christian again of a kind, at least a worshiper of the one true God, long before evangelization. All the poets listed in this poem are described as being gifted by God uh, with brilliant swift judgment by means of the natural law. The female poet, Brieg Amba, was given to God the gift of natural wisdom, according to this poem, so that she always gave true judgment. And so on for many more poet judges, all of them pre-Christian, all of them, according to this poem, aided by the one God, so that early Irish law was ready to be completed by the law of the scriptures. Another tract on poetic inspiration from the eighth century, it speaks of the fire of knowledge with which poets must be filled. And the same tract makes explicit that this gift of poetic inspiration is a gift from God. So it seems that this fire of knowledge simply is the fire of the Holy Spirit. And again, all this should be making us rethink the pagan nature of Abergan's song, who is the God who fashions fire for the head. We could add many more examples of Irish Christian appreciation of pagan Irish culture and of naturally good pagan individuals from any period of medieval Irish poetry or law or from Irish hagiography, the lives of the saints. We could think of the ninth century old Irish life of St. Bridget, in which a Druid watching the stars at night sees a column of fire rising from the house in which the infant Bridget was sleeping. And he becomes the first then to recognize her holiness. We could think too of St. Columba of Iona or Columba of Derry, as described in the writings of his successor, Adavnan, arriving on the Isle of Skye and prophesying that there is on the island a pagan who has preserved his natural goodness and who will be baptized. And a little later, the man in question, an old man called Art Brannan, he arrives at the shoreline and is ready to be baptized. Another vital moment in the life or legend of Columba is his defense of the poets, this learned class of poets at the convention of Drimkath or, or Drumkeet, I think it's pronounced today, where he supposedly reconciled Ireland's poets with the kings who had collectively uh, sought to banish them because the poet's satire was too powerful uh, in relation to the, uh, to the power of the kings. So he defends the poets successfully at this convention and he strengthens thereby the loyalty of the poets to Columba and to the Christian faith. That's a tradition that dates back at least to the 11th century and possibly before. The location of this meeting, uh, Drumkeet, is a mound outside Limavady, currently situated behind the 11th green on a golf course. So romantic Ireland is dead and gone. Once again, we can leave to one side the question of whether these events happened as described or were later creations. 
Their importance for us this evening lies in what they reveal about attitudes among medieval Irish Christian intellectuals to their pre-Christian counterparts. They do not regard the pagan past in its people and institutions and literature as irredeemably bad, but precisely as redeemable, as naturally good for the most part, and capable of completion and fulfillment in the Christian dispensation. So it's hopefully clear now that many medieval Irish Christians, while rejecting, of course, pagan beliefs, were more than enthusiastic about the culture of what they understood to be pagan Ireland, its stories, its poets, its laws. And this is not just a feature of the fringes of the institutions of early medieval Ireland, but it's right at the heart of things in major Christian institutions. So what brought them back to this pagan past, real or imagined? It can't just have been motivated by evangelization as a way to reach out to an unconverted pagan population, because it's unlikely that there was a substantial non-Christian, at least nominally Christian population in Ireland beyond the eighth century, say. And the Christian appreciation of pagan culture actually picks up and increases after that point, well into the period when a real religious alternative to Christianity was nothing more than a distant memory. Another way to answer this question, and probably the standard one among our peers, rests on the idea that Christianity is essentially puritanical and is opposed to whatever is non-biblical, that it is life-denying and so on. Given that so many non-biblical narratives survive in Irish monastic contexts, people who regard Christianity as essentially narrow-minded and puritanical are forced to conclude that the monks concerned were actually bad Christians, that they were half Christians, half pagan, professing the creed but with their fingers crossed. This is something of a conspiracy theory that ought to crumble in the face of the massive evidence that the Christianity of medieval Ireland was normal Orthodox Catholic Christianity. All the communities of monastic learning were community, thank you very much, took a while. All the communities of monastic learning were communities in which the Eucharist was the center of communal life, communities which sang the hymns and the psalms that were sung by countless other communities throughout the Christian world and are still sung today on Dominic Street, for example. Communities which fasted and feasted in tune with the liturgical year. Communities which studied the Bible carefully, which produced biblical poetry in the vernacular and whose artistic work centered on biblical books, liturgical vessels and reliquaries. They were influenced continually by travel to and from Britain and the continent. They weren't half pagan and yet they loved so much of what was pagan. So is there any reasonable explanation for this available to us? I'd like to propose one, one based on the idea that this pagan friendliness was actually inspired by the biblical and patristic texts which filled monastic libraries. So, dramatic pause. So consider, for example, that the Christians of early Ireland, they were far from the first to struggle with a massive pagan cultural inheritance. Mediterranean Christians had to deal with this as well, and they dealt with it in a variety of ways. So some certainly were implacably opposed to any and all artifacts of culture associated with the traditional gods, understood now reconceived as demons. Others were considerably more nuanced, and they carefully carved out a position which we might identify as Christian humanism, certainly opposed to pagan uh, worship and ritual and so on, but broadly appreciative of what was regarded as good in pagan philosophy and literature and law. 
So in the second and third century, we find Christian writers like Justin Martyr, Athenagoras, and Clement of Alexandria, making use of a great deal of pagan literature, philosophy, and prophecy in their writings. Uh, so in these works, the prophecies of pagan female prophets from around the Mediterranean, identified as uh, Sibyls, that's the name that's given to them collectively, they appear in the works of these Christians as authentic witnesses to the truth about God, the soul, providence, and so on. Alongside prophecies of the legendary uh, Egyptian priest Hermes Trismegistus. The poets of the Greco-Roman world, they feature prominently in these early Christian works as well. So Athenagoras, for example, he claims that poets are particularly sensitive to the breath of God and that they have hit, this is pagan poets, and that they have hit on important truths in spite of their polytheistic religious environment. Clement of Alexandria, he quotes dozens, hundreds of works of Greek literature, history, tragedy, lyric poetry, epic poetry, oracles, the lot. He quotes 31 different plays by Euripides, for example. Now, some of this Christian writing is aimed at pagans, but much of it is not. And there's an explicit theological basis to all of this. The word of God, and you can read some of their texts, I've given you a good few of them on the handle. The word of God incarnate in Jesus Christ is the word in which all things hold together, the rationality of the universe itself. So all those who engage their reason in self-reflection or reflection on creation can gain some access to the word of God, some what Clement calls fragments of eternal truth. So part of the task of the Christian intellectual, according to Clement of Alexandria, is to gather up these separate fragments. And he's curious about not just around the Mediterranean world, but also the gymnosophists, the, the Indian philosophers. He's gathering up fragments even as far as India. So the idea is that you gather up all these fragments and to make them one. He says the essentials of the Christian faith are simple and accessible even to the unlettered. But for Christian literati, pagan learning is greatly valuable and need not be a guilty pleasure. So to quote Clement, the truth of our faith is as necessary for life as bread, but Greek literature is like dessert at the end of a meal. Mm -hmm. Now, these writers, they weren't necessarily directly influential in medieval Ireland, those who wrote in Greek, but there are plenty of Latin writers who took the same nuanced approach to the world of Greco-Roman paganism and who were very well known in Ireland. Their names, they might not get our, our blood pumping, but appreciating their influence is vital to understanding Irish Christianity, I think, and understanding how we get Cuchulain in monastic libraries. So I'm just going to mention two. I could have mentioned a few more, but just two. The first of these writers is St. Augustine of Hippo. The influence on his writings of, uh, uh, on this period in Ireland is just immense. And I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of those reading and writing in medieval Ireland, they were influenced by Augustine. So where does he stand on the pagan past? More than most writers, it's true, he emphasizes the difference that Christianity makes, the difference made by grace to natural human life. But he's nevertheless capable of great admiration for pagan culture. So the Christian attitude to that culture should, he thinks, be like that of the people of Israel leaving Egypt at the Exodus. They take the gold of Egypt with them, not the gold idols, but the gold jewelry and art and so on. They take all that is good with them, all that can rightly be used. And Augustine justifies this on the basis of the practice of earlier generations of Christians, Cyprian, Lactantius, the Greeks, and even Moses, he claims, was learned in the wisdom of the Egyptians. 
So Augustine is at times ambiguous about the value of pagan literature, but Virgil and Cicero, they're simply in his bones and they're quoted time and time again in his works. In his work on the city of God, Augustine expanded at length on the virtues of various pagan Romans at great length, as well as on the wisdom of philosophers like Plato, who was clearly a massive influence on Augustine. Now, other Christian writers, when they found parallels between Plato and the scriptures, they had suggested that Plato was secretly stealing uh, from, from Moses or from Jeremiah or so on. But Augustine says, no, that's not the case. It was by reflecting on nature that Plato became wise, coming to know the invisible God by means of his visible creation. And St. Augustine was drawing, of course, there on St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And he draws on the same letter in his understanding of natural law, lex naturalis. That's a, a key term in Augustine's thought. Natural law, Augustine thinks, extends further than the written law of scripture. That should remind you of the prologue to the Shenicus Moor. And in the absence of written law, it should be the basis for human laws. And finally, just like Clement and Athenagoras, he draws on the prophecy of the Sibyls and sometimes at great length, especially the Eritrean Sibyl. The second Latin writer relevant to our question tonight is even less well known, St. Isidore of Seville, um, patron saint of the internet, by the way, hardly less important than Augustine in the intellectual formation of early medieval Ireland. So his major work, the etymologies, it was circulating in Ireland, possibly already within Isidore's own lifetime, which is really extraordinary. He's working in Spain and his, his, uh, his early, his work, the etymologies, is in Ireland already within his own lifetime. So the earliest fragment of this text that survives, you're looking at it right now, it's in an Irish hand of the seventh century, now in the Stiftsbibliothek in, in St. Gallen. And you can see that typical Irish feature, starting a word with very, very large letters and then progressively decreasing. And it's that identifiably Irish feature, which is why we start um, sentences today with, with a capital letter. So you can see here the aurium, he's describing uh, the etymology of the word uh, for ear, um, and he says it's because we drink in how real we drink in sounds with with our ears. Um, so this uh, it was so culturally significant in Ireland, this work, the etymologies, that it's given an Irish nickname. It's known as the Quillmen from the Latin Quillmen, the, the summit, the peak. And there's a late legend describing how it came to arrive in Ireland. The idea is that it was a kind of a book swap. We gave the Tombo Cúlne to Spain and they gave us the etymologies. It's a kind of an encyclopedia with sections on mathematics, medicine, religion, language, animals, agriculture, and so on. And it draws widely, not only on scripture, but also on the full range of classical literature. So just reading it, it gives you a, a sense of what we might mean by Christian humanism. And once again, here we find many ideas that would support in an Irish context, a positive appreciation of pagan culture. So when he writes about law, for example, Isidore gives a list of originators of the laws of various peoples. And I've given it to you on your, on your handout. Moses is top of the list, of course. But then there's also Hermes Trismegistus, who first gave laws to the Egyptians. Solon, who gave laws to the Athenians. Lycurgus to the Spartans. Numa to the Romans, and so on. And you can see why Irish readers reading uh, the etymologies would want to add their own lawgivers to that list. And he writes about natural law as well. He says, natural law is common to all nations and exists everywhere by the instinct of nature. And he also has a section on the civils. He gives a long list of the civils and says that they have written many things most clearly 
even for pagans, about God and Christ. And when he writes about poetry, he gives great detail about individual pagan poets and poetic traditions, and he weaves them together with traditions of biblical poetry. Moses is compared to Homer, Jeremiah to Simonides. So Augustine and Isidore, they're at the heart of monastic learning in medieval Ireland. They're at the heart of the liberal arts curriculum, which the Irish shared with the rest of Latin Christianity, and in which the Irish excelled. And in each of these authors, early Irish Christians could find abundant justification, not only for respecting their pagan past, but for harvesting the best of it, preserving it, and synthesizing it with Christian revelation. But before concluding, we shouldn't pass over the one book which is even more central to monastic learning than Augustine and Isidore, and that is the Bible. In the Library of Sacred Scripture, there's a great deal of polemic against polytheistic worship, of course, and against pagan practices generally. But there are good pagans in the Bible as well. We've already made reference to St. Paul's understanding of the natural access to morality and knowledge of God. But the Old Testament contains several very significant Gentiles. Rahab and Ruth are two famous examples. But there's Jethro as well, the father-in-law of Moses. He's a Midianite priest, so he doesn't belong to the people of Israel. And he gives Moses some key legal advice at one point. He says, Moses, you need to stop judging all the cases yourself. You need to appoint 70 judges um, who will you know, basically delegate. That's the, the message of Jethro. But then in early Irish law texts, who turns up as justification for preserving the laws of Gentiles? Jethro. He is given explicitly as justification for trusting the judgments of, uh, of pagans. Melchizedek is another noble Gentile. He blesses Abraham in the book of Genesis. He's a priest. He's not an Israelite. But early Irish texts regard his priesthood not as idolatrous, but as natural and good. So in a 7th century uh, canonical uh, collection from Ireland, he's identified as the first of the priests of the natural law. Then there's Job. The whole story of Job takes place outside the world of Israel. He's uniquely just and he has special affinity with the one God, but he is a Gentile. At the climax of the book of Job, there's this direct communication between God and Job as God speaks from the whirlwind. The illustration here is by, by William Blake. And God invites Job to consider the majesty and the mystery of creative things. And it goes on for, for quite a bit. We'll just give you a little snippet of it here. In early medieval Ireland, this part of Job from about chapter 38 on, it is central to understanding the universe and its elements. So Job, in his encounter with God, becomes for the Irish a guide to the created world. But incidentally, how does God speak to Job from the whirlwind? In the form of rhetorical questions. Questions which are instantly reminiscent of those we find in Avergan's song, suggesting, I think, that Avergan in the Lebergavala Aaron is being presented as an Irish Job of sorts, an inspired visionary in contact with the one God who sends the fire of inspiration upon the heads of poets and apostles alike. So these three good pagans in the Bible, they're fairly straightforward. But the final one is a bit of a strange choice. Abraham, he is the father of Israel, but in the Irish reading of scripture, what's emphasized about him is his knowledge of God in advance of the giving of the law and advance of the prophets. He's taken to be the one who knows God by the contemplation of nature, especially the stars. 
And we've already seen him in the life of Patrick as a model for, uh, for Monesson, another who finds God via created things. But he turns up in that role in Irish biblical commentaries as well and in the periphyseon of John Scotus Eriugena. So what does all this mean? It doesn't provide a sufficient explanation for all of early Irish literature, but it does show, I think, that we need not regard the monastic intellectuals of Ireland, like the compilers of the Book of Leinster, as bad Christians. In their own libraries, in biblical and patristic sources, the thinkers of early medieval Ireland, they found abundant justification for the preservation of whatever they found to be good and noble in their ancestors' traditions. Earlier generations of Christians had already thought through the relevant issues and had given them the conceptual tools with which to appreciate their own pagan precursors. If on the basis of their understanding of the word of God and the activity of the Holy Spirit, earlier generations of Mediterranean Christians could justify a nuanced appreciation of their pagan culture in all its variety, so too could Irish Christians in their time. Dovtoch, Ferkertne, Brigambe, Cuchulain, Conor MacNessa and Abergan himself, they could all be understood variously as partakers of the word of God and inspired by the Holy Spirit, as Homer was to Clement, as Plato to Augustine, as Aristotle to Thomas Aquinas, as Virgil to Dante, so the poets of Ireland were to early medieval Irish Christians. Their love of pre-Christian culture was not a bug in their Christianity, but a feature of it, grounded in a theological conviction concerning the goodness of nature, even fallen nature, and the capacity of human intellects even darkened intellects, to discover truths by the observation of reality and to derive law from the contemplation of nature. Grace perfects nature, it doesn't destroy it. That's one of Aquinas' great insights. And it sums up the foundation of any Christian humanism worthy of the name. The Christian intellectuals of early medieval Ireland, they might not have been as systematic as St. Thomas, but I think it's safe to say that they would wholeheartedly concur with them on this point. So it's not in spite of Christian convictions then, but at least partly because of those convictions that we have come to hear the distant echo of Pagan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.